Welcome to You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt podcast. My name is Jessica. And my name is Sarah. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash heaven in a miniskirt, where you will find our bonus episodes. And currently we have one bonus episode per month. And hopefully we'll have more going forward. You can find us on social media at heaven in a miniskirt on Instagram and TikTok and on Twitter or X as we call it now at miniskirt pod. We don't want a dead name X. <laughs> I heard dead someone say that X. and I was like it's so good. <laughs> How about it's so good? Because okay, so every time I see like any journalist talking about X, they say X formerly known as Twitter. And I'm like, when does that end? Because how that's the longest name. X formerly known as Twitter. It's not as long as you can't get to have an miniskirt podcast. Oh. <laughs> Nothing is as long as that. Okay. So do you want to tell everybody what we're going to talk about today, Jess? Because this is kind of your jam. We're moving from the Protestant realm to... The Catholic realm. So y'all are going to learn a little something today because we're going to talk about the Virgin Mary. This is was a really interesting one to research because as I was researching, I kind of realized that our listeners are probably mainly either Protestants or ex-Protestants. And because of this, they probably have a very specific view on the Virgin Mary. And I feel like I'm going to teach some people stuff today. I'm excited for this because my knowledge of Catholics, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know, it is always from the lens of a very judgmental Baptist being like, <laughs> this is what Catholics <laughs> think. And it's usually right, but it's it's obviously very biased. So I'm excited to hear Well, more. it's funny that you say that. So yesterday on our Instagram story... I posed a question because I wanted to gauge what everyone's thoughts were on the Virgin Mary and what their relationship was or is with the Virgin Mary. We got some interesting answers because I said, what is your relationship with the Virgin Mary? And someone said, my relationship was somewhere between none and weirded out with the Catholic obsession. Someone said they thought that Catholics were going to hell for having statues of her and praying for her. And... Yeah, someone said us Protestants didn't give a fuck unless it was Christmas. So I'm glad that I asked that question because then I kind of realized as I was going in today that I was like, oh, a lot of people that listen have the same view as you, Sarah, because of the church that they grew up in. I'm sure, though, that we have some ex-Catholics that listen or current Catholics or what have you. So this might be interesting. So the first half of today's podcast, we're going to talk about like information, history, stuff about the Virgin Mary. And then the second half is going to be more of a philosophical conversation because I got really down the philosophy rabbit hole with this one and we're going to get into it. I love that for us. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) I minored in philosophy and I'm excited to revisit. We're going to get into it. So part one, we're going to talk about Catholic Mariology. There's an actual name for the theological study and devotion to Mary, and it's called Mariology. Did you know that? No, I did not. That's the name for the theological study and devotion to Mary within the Roman Catholic Church. And it encompasses a bunch of beliefs and doctrines. So we're going to talk about the doctrines in a second. But first, I wanted to talk about what is the role of Mary in the Catholic Church? And this is where I'm realizing that I'm going to blow your mind, Sarah. Okay. So there's definitely a lot of misconceptions in Protestant religions in terms of what the Virgin Mary means to the Catholic Church. We got it and right. I... <laughs> what? You're wrong. The Protestants You're knew wrong. everything about the Catholics. <laughs> the end. That's the end of the episode. We're done. Bye. 
And bye. Um, I first <laughs> want to point out that Catholics don't worship Mary. You just pray to her. Oh my God, Sarah. I can feel the bias seeping through. <laughs> you can feel the Protestant anger just... <laughs> just permeating the conversation so they don't worship her so these are the roles that mary plays in catholicism okay Okay. so she's the mother of god and i think protestants also agree with that in in a way that's one of the doctrines that we'll get into she's the mother of the church so when jesus was dying on the cross he gave instructions to his disciple john slash gay lover (laughs) to take care of mary when he died This symbolizes her maternal care to the church. So she is a symbol of compassion and motherly love for the church. So it's just a symbol that, you know, especially women or mothers take great comfort. She's the epitome of faith and obedience to Catholics. So it's like, you got to be like Mary. You got to be pure like Mary. And this is, this is an interesting one. Okay. The last one, she's the mediatrix of graces. It is believed that she plays a role in distributing God's graces to humanity, meaning she brings the prayers to Jesus and is an advocate for those in need. Like an intermediary kind of? An intermediary. So like the saints, like the saints, it's the same thing. It's just that Mary is like the best one. She's the highest. There's a hierarchy. Jesus is on top. And then Mary and then the saints. Like the umbrella of authority? Yeah. Yeah, basically. So that's kind of where the Protestants are like, you pray to Mary. And it's like, well, you pray to Mary so that she'll bring your prayers to Jesus. But Protestants are like, no, like I got the real formula. I just go straight to Jesus. It's kind of the same with like, we confess we, I'm not a Protestant, but like speaking for Protestants, we confess our (laughs) sins directly to Jesus, to God, Mm -hmm. whereas Catholics go to an intermediary, like their priest. So that has always been a point of contention against Catholics. So I find that very interesting that like, it's like we're kind of splitting hairs, but like there is a difference between saying like, oh, we're praying to Mary, but we're praying to Mary so that she'll go to Jesus because we hold so much respect for Mary that we know that she's an advocate for us to Jesus. So it's like, it's almost like you have someone on your side, but again, it's one imaginary person or another imaginary person, in my opinion. It's whatever gives you the most comfort. That's a woman. That's cool. Hey, right? It's nice to have a woman advocating for you and a mother, especially being a mom. It's hard as fuck. It's nice to have another mom being like, I got you. So the role of Mary in the Protestant church. I have three points here you can add to this. Okay. Protestants typically hold respect for Mary, but see her as human and fallible. They tend to hold reverence for the Bible and Christ above all else, and they don't use Mary as an intercessor, meaning they pray directly to Jesus. Is there anything else you'd like to add about what the Protestants think of Mary? Just what the Protestants think of Mary, not what the Protestants think that the Catholics think about Mary. So what the Protestants think of Mary, I remember like always being told that she was like the ideal example of a faithful woman. Because, you know, like even though she was afraid, she was still okay with being impregnated and dealing with all of the drama around that and then being faithful to God. So she was the example of like what you would want to be as a godly woman. Yeah. I think that's not that far off with what the Catholics think. It's just that the Catholics definitely take it like 15 steps further. But we never like no one specifically called her like the mother of God. Like she was Mm. like Jesus's mom. But no one said mother of God. Interesting. There's like a distinction there. Yeah. Interesting that you bring that up because it's like literally the next thing we're going to talk about. So there you go. We're going to talk about the four Marian dogmas of the Catholic Church. 
each dogma is a big conversation in itself. So the first dogma is the divine motherhood. So what you just said, Sarah, is that Protestants typically don't really believe this, but parts of it are generally accepted by all Christian denominations. So it's accepted by all Christian denominations that Mary gave birth to Jesus. As a virgin, generally. As a virgin, yeah. Generally, everyone believes that. The Catholic dogma says that Mary is not only the mother of Jesus in his human nature, but also the mother of God. There's a word for this in Greek, and it's theotokos. So that's the name of the dogma. It's theotokos. And theotokos means mother of God. And it's a special title for Mary to show her importance in the Christian faith. So it's like a way of saying that Mary is the mother of Jesus and Jesus is God's son. So she is the mother of God. This is an interesting one because in my opinion, it just seems like a lot of mental gymnastics. Like I didn't get the chance to like really grasp this one. The best example that I could really come up with is like there's a mother and the mother's son is the prince and the prince is going to be king so she's a mother but she's also what's called the queen mother mary's essentially the queen mother but mother of god like sure like i i don't know i i don't know why i couldn't really grasp as to why this was so important but it obviously is and the history of this is really interesting this dogma it emphasizes the inseparability of jesus's divine and human natures And it says that Mary's son, Jesus, is fully God and fully human. This was formally declared as something called the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. You know how there's like the Council of Nicaea? Turns out... We like councils. There's a lot of councils over the years, which really helps you deconstruct Christianity because you're like, wow, it's just (laughs) a bunch of men getting together and making shit up. Jessica, the councils were all guided by the Holy Spirit, so... I don't know how you can deny that. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I don't know how you can believe that. So the Second Council of Ephesus, it affirmed the divine motherhood of Mary, as well as the unity of Jesus's divine and human natures. It also rejected something called Nestorianism. So what the fuck went down during the Second Council of Ephesus? Spill the tea. There is a saint called saint cyril of alexandria and he accused nestorius another priest of heresy (gasps) nestorius was the archbishop of constantinople okay and his theology was considered to be quite controversial so he taught the rejection of naming mary a theotokos which means the god bearer instead of calling her something called christokos which means bearer of christ i don't we're splitting fucking hairs like why do we care here (laughs) There's a lot of hairs being split in this episode, Sarah. Trust me. So essentially, like, this was, like, the biggest fucking deal that ever happened in 431 AD. This is from gotquestions.org, actually, this portion. (laughs) Of course Thanks, gotquestions.org. Nestorianism, it cleaved the nature and person of Christ in two. Christ's human and divine natures were completely divergent and unconnected. According to Nestorius, Mary gave birth to Christ, but not to God. Mary was the mother of his humanity, which was totally distinct from his divinity. Jesus was two persons sharing one body, essentially. So we think Jesus had multiple personality disorder? Is this basically it? Yeah, well, he was two persons sharing one body. So yeah, I guess. Two persons in there. one. Christians love love the concept of like multiple people in one. Like shampoo. 
shampoo conditioner combos. Like you go to the men's aisle, it's like three in one. It's body wash, shampoo. It'll work as face shaving cream. That's the same thing, actually. Yeah. Such a nice metaphor for the Trinity. I never thought about three in one shampoo, body wash, conditioner. (laughs) So it was interesting because you said that the Protestants believe that Jesus is human and God. Fully God and fully man at the same time. Yeah. And we would usually say man because man was all encompassing for human because we didn't like using inclusive language. <laughs> Hashtag NIV. Catholics believe that too, but not this guy. He was like, no, no, no. They are two different people in one body. Makes total sense, clearly. Like, I don't know. God making himself a person while also being that person's father, but the same person at the same time. And then, like, none of it really makes sense. But also sense. being the Holy Spirit, which is, yeah. I don't fucking know. But God's ways are higher than ours, Jess. So just trust. <laughs> just don't even fucking worry about it. Just <laughs> <Yes>. trust. <laughs> Sounds like a good explanation. Essentially, though, this notorious Archbishop guy mm-hmm. is accused of heresy. And St. Cyril is the guy who accused him. He appealed to the Pope at the time, who was Pope Celestine I to declare Nestorius a heretic and excommunicate him. The emperor at the time, Theodosius II, then called a council to settle the dispute. Nestorius showed up and was like ready to fight and claim that St. Cyril was a heretic back. Like Nestorius was yeah, accused yeah. of being a heretic, but he's like, no, Cyril's a heretic. What did Pope Silly say? The po- Basically, the council had already made up his mind. They were like, we already talked about this, bitch, and you're out. And they excommunicated Nestorius. I know. Bye, buddy. So he's uh, gone, gone. And then from then on, the divine motherhood, which is one of the four Marian dogmas, was solidified in the Catholic Church. Oh, and then I just wanted to throw this fact in here because we just talked about it, that there was a second council of Nicaea, and that was in 787 AD. It affirmed the three-level hierarchy of, and I'm going to say the Latin names, of Latria, Hyperdulia, and Dulia that applies to God slash Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and then the other saints. So, like, that's the hierarchy. So they did that at that council. Like, she's at the top. Totally. Yeah, she's held to a higher regard than other saints in Catholicism. Cool. So that is the first Marian dogma. The next Marian dogma, you're going to like this one, is Immaculate Conception. Rejected by Protestants. No, 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 no. I don't no. think you know what Immaculate Conception means. The Holy Spirit. No. The Immaculate Conception doesn't refer to Jesus being conceived. It's referred to Mary's own conception. I know. I didn't know this either. But we say Immaculate Conception. We say that. I thought we said that. I'm going to. I thought so too. But when you like literally, if you just Google Immaculate Conception, you realize that they're talking about Mary, not Jesus. Oh, I'm Googling it now. Meaning. Oh, wow. So she didn't have any sin either. So did I just blow your mind? Yeah. I had a feeling that you also didn't know what it meant because I definitely thought that it meant Jesus. And I feel like we've talked about Immaculate Conception before. And then when I looked this up, I was like, wait a fucking minute. So Immaculate Conception, this dogma has to do with Mary's purity and sanctity from the very beginning of her existence, making her a fitting vessel to bear the son of God. So let me tell you about fucking splitting hairs here, Sarah, because the way that this dogma came to be is absolutely ridiculous. So it's been around since the early days of Christianity, but it was like shrouded in some debate at the beginning. Some early saints praised Mary's purity and holiness, but it just wasn't an official stance early on. They had to get all the councils 
So in the Middle Ages, St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Thomas Aquinas, they debated the issue. So some theologians held that Mary was sanctified in her mother's womb, while other believes that she was purified at the moment of the Annunciation. And the Annunciation is when Gabriel came to her and... She was raped by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Yes. The, an example of the splitting hairs is that like, so St. Thomas Aquinas, he proposed a different idea known as preservative sanctification or preventative redemption. So his argument was that Mary was sanctified before her birth, but not at her conception. So he believed at some point between her conception and birth, divine grace was infused into her soul to purify her from original sin. And he was like, this is a really important issue that we need to discuss. <laughs> Can we just say the whole concept of original sin is... Stupid. Flawed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> flawed. Yeah. There. Where do, when do I get my fucking council meeting to discuss this shit? <laughs> yeah. We need a new council. Let's call one. <sighs> so essentially, like, as time went on, several popes issued statements in support of this dogma. But it wasn't actually until December 8th, 1854, when it was defined by Pope Pius IX. So it was, like, Whoa. actually not that long ago. That's that, recent. Yeah. So he declared that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin. And it's from the moment of her conception in her mother's womb. And that she was preserved from original sin by unique grace and privilege granted by God. And now it's widely accepted in Catholic culture. Interesting. And not in Protestant culture, because as you said, Mary, according to Protestants, is a human and she isn't preserved from original sin. Like, yeah, she might be revered above people because she is a pure woman, but she still had original sin, which like, I don't fucking know. Do you have any questions about the dogmas so far? Mary, mother of God and immaculate conception, meaning that Mary was pure from conception. Was Mary's mother a virgin? Because this just has the problem of infinite regression. If you think about it, when it's like, (laughs) well, you need an original creator, but then it's like, who created the creator? Well, you need an original virgin that's pure, but who? But that's why they're like, was she purified with the grace of God while she was in the womb? Or was it at the moment of her conception? And or was it the moment of her birth? That's where like all those little details came in. And they decided that it was from her conception i don't know what to tell you it god works in mysterious ways sarah just accept it his ways are higher than ours okay cool no further questions accept the truth and move on dogma three is the assumption this is probably like the least interesting one so this dogma is that at the end of her earthly life mary was taken up body and soul into heaven uh it was formally declared as a dogma in 1950 oh my god I know. Like, <laughs> that's not like, that long ago. Yeah. Essentially, like within Catholicism, it's not clear whether Mary died like a physical death or if she like and then was taken up to heaven. She wasn't like resurrected like Jesus was. We don't even know if her bo- her body was taken up into heaven already. But isn't heaven just like in our minds? On the new <laughs> earth, we're gonna have real physical bodies allegedly, but. When you, okay, when you think, but that's not a minor detail that she just like didn't die and like her body and soul went to heaven. Like I'm going to go ahead and speak for all Protestants once again. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but we didn't, we were not taught that. We were taught that no one gave a fuck. Once Jesus went to heaven, no one cared. You are correct, Sarah, because it's not supported by any specific Bible verses. And therefore Protestants don't generally believe in this dogma. Because we believe the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Basically in the Ascension, 
Jesus ascended into heaven by his own power as a son of God. And then in the assumption, Mary is taken up to heaven by God's grace. And did you know that the assumption is celebrated on August 15th in the Catholic Church as a feast of the assumption? Do you celebrate it? I've never fucking heard of it. The point of this dogma is to emphasize the role that she plays in the salvation and her closeness to Jesus. So just basically it's like Mary's super important. So that is the point of this dogma. Again, probably the least interesting one. But like you said, it is really interesting that they just assume that she didn't die a physical death and that she got ascended into heaven like as a special person and no one else really did. No, there were other characters in the Bible that that also ascended. Like um, Elisha. I'm pretty sure. I'm going to just check this. So we got Enoch, we got Elijah, and we got Mary. She's the only woman. There's only one vagina in heaven because there's only one female body. (laughs) You heard it. You heard it from us first. Okay. So those are the first three dogmas. We're on to the last dogma, which is going to be the bulk of our conversation today, which is Mary's perpetual virginity. So Sarah, what do the Protestants believe about Mary's virginity? Well, we know that Jesus had some siblings. And so the Protestants make the assumption that after Mary got knocked up by the Holy Spirit or Angel Gabriel, whoever we think did it, she had Jesus. And then her and Joseph got married and had lots of great sex and had lots of more children who were then the half siblings of Jesus. You're a heretic, Sarah. They were married. They were a man and a woman that were in a God-blessed heterosexual marriage so that's the way you do there's sex. some ancient theologians that believe that staying a virgin is more holy than getting married and having sex so we'll talk about that in a minute so perpetual virginity within the catholic church according to this dogma mary remained a virgin throughout her life before during and after the birth of jesus first of all love how it says during the birth of jesus like she's gonna have <laughs> sex during the birth <laughs> When I saw that, I just was like, I got included in the podcast. It just makes me laugh the yeah. way it was worded. They did not copulate during active labor. Perfect. So it was formally recognized by the Lateran Council in 649 AD. It asserts that Jesus was born a virgin, so this doctrine, and Mary's virginity was never compromised. So this is like an ancient one. This isn't from the 19 fucking 50s. So Jesus' siblings came, came from Joseph's past marriage. So Catholics, first of all, don't believe that Jesus had brothers. The first thing to understand is that the term brother has a broader meaning. It can mean biological brother. It can mean also spiritual brother. Brother can mean anything. (laughs) It could just mean buddy. It's like, yo, bro. Yeah, bro. Yeah. They've been saying that since biblical times. So they believe that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. Interesting to note that during the Protestant reform of the 16th century, Martin Luther and John Calvin actually accepted this. Isn't that interesting? Which is strange. Yeah. But it's not to say that they accepted it for long or the people that took over after they died accepted it. It's just that they seemed to not really. It wasn't the hill they were dying on, perhaps. No, I'm sure they died on a lot of other hills. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an interesting little tidbit for you. So you're all heretics, by the way. Nope. This belief has been around since the early days of Christianity. This is probably like one of the most ancient beliefs about Mary. And this belief is featured in an apocryphal text called the Proto-Evangelium of James. It's also known as the Infancy Gospel of James. It's dated in the second century and it features a few sections. So the first section would be the birth and childhood of Mary. It begins with the story of Mary's parents, Joachim and Anne 
who were childless for many years until an angel informed Anne that she's going to conceive and give birth to a daughter, which was Mary. And so Mary's birth is portrayed as a miraculous event. A lot of angels appearing to people, telling them that they're going to have babies. Haven't heard of that in a while. Hasn't happened in a hot minute. So the next part of this gospel talks about Mary's early life in the temple. She was dedicated to the service of the temple in Jerusalem as a young child and spent her formative years there. This is where she made the vow of perpetual virginity. Okay, interesting. It talks about the Annunciation, which is when the angel Gabriel informs Mary that she's going to conceive and bear a son, Jesus, who's going to be the savior. Mary, she expresses the concern at this time about her vow to virginity, and the angel reassures her that her virginity will remain intact. Interesting. Mm -hmm. There's way more of an emphasis on virginity. Yeah, so in this apocryphal text. And then they talk about the birth of Jesus. So it describes the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. It includes details such as the absence of pain during childbirth for Mary. Yeah, good for her. Fuck you, Mary. (laughs) Maybe she had some fentanyl or like an epidural. Yeah, she had the original epidural. The epidural of God's grace. And then it talks about, apparently it introduces two midwives who attended to Mary during Jesus' birth. What are their names? I don't know. Probably Mary. Mary and Mary. And Mary. (laughs) The three Marys. Yeah. I didn't look it up. You're going to have to read the apocryphal gospel of Jesus. I have before. It's been a while. Oh, you have? Yeah. So we're going to move on. So by the fourth century, the belief in Mary's perpetual virginity had become widely accepted and... It's included in various creeds. There's some theologians that would debate this over the years, but it would be rejected. So this isn't really one that like anyone, it was never really up for debate within the Catholic church, but it was formally defined in 649, as I said, at the Lateran council. And it stated that anyone who denied Mary's perpetual virginity would be excommunicated. So they were just like straight up, not fucking around with that one. Those are the four dogmas of Mary within the Catholic church. And To go over it again, we got divine motherhood slash theotokos, which is the Greek word for divine motherhood, the immaculate conception, the assumption, and the perpetual virginity. So did you, do you feel like you learned something about Mary today? I do. Yeah. I feel like I've been using the term, not I feel like I know now that I've been using the term immaculate conception wrong every time. And I was under the Mm -hmm. assumption that the Catholic church believed that they were Joseph's kids from a previous marriage, but that's Eastern Orthodox and that is not the position of the Catholic Church. So I feel like I and those past Baptists that educated me in the 90s about these issues were wrong. They were wrong. Are you telling me that something that you learned in the church has come to be incorrect? <laughs> yeah. That is shocking news. And shocking. I thought that they prayed to Mary and prayed to the saints. Well, they pray to Mary to jesus it's like she's his pa or something like her yeah she's his assistant exactly yo can you give this message to jesus please yeah and it's like mary is an advocate for the poor and mary is an advocate for mothers and mary she's just someone who's very well respected that has jesus's ear interesting so no i feel like i definitely learned a couple of things and the perpetual virginity that's I'm interested again to the section two, like the philosophy of yeah. it, because I think our obsession with female virginity, even though we all know that Jesus was a virgin, like no one makes as big of a deal of that. You know, what's interesting that you say that is that until we started this podcast, I never even really thought about Jesus being a virgin. But you didn't read the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> okay. 
I read the Da Vinci Code, I watched the movie, and we talked about it on the podcast. Okay, I'll correct myself. It doesn't seem like Catholics really emphasize or care about Jesus being a virgin as much. But with Baptists, it was like, bitch, do not imply that Jesus had sex. Do not imply he was married. Oh. <laughs> I think I can speak for everyone now. Like, 30 minutes talking <laughs> with you, and I'm like, I can talk for Catholics now. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I am saying, though, I'm sure, though, that they do say Jesus was a virgin. But I just don't think... Like you said, there's as much of an emphasis on a man's virginity as a woman's virginity. A woman's virginity is so much higher regarded in the worst kinds of ways. It's because of the fucking hymen. They don't have a hymen. Even though 50% of hymens are broke before women lose their virginity because we do activities such as biking or horse riding. Or Or just generally living our lives. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about virginity as a symbol of purity. So kind of some notes that I wrote down, like, We'll have lots to talk about, but before we get to the philosophy, I think that it's worth chatting about what society thinks about virginity. It's really interesting. The reason that I started going down the philosophy rabbit hole was because I obviously was researching the Virgin Mary and being like, why do we fucking care if she was a virgin? And virginity is just seen as the ultimate form of purity and moral integrity. And I think because... Like, among people, sexual desires are so intense. and Some people, not for everybody, but it can be so intense. And seeing someone that can conquer this is, like, the epitome of moral superiority. And I think as humans, like, we have primal needs such as, like, eating, drinking. But, like, if we don't do these things, we're going to die. But if we don't have sex, we're not going to die. It's just that we will be sad and horny. (laughs) Yes. So, like, the way that I started to think about it as, like, you know how people see, like, rich, thin women like Gwyneth Paltrow? And they're like, oh, she's better than everyone else because she's so thin. Because presumably, like, in our minds, rich people can afford to eat whatever they want, whenever they want. But these rich, thin women are choosing not to eat. And so they're like, oh, they're just fucking morally superior to everyone else. So I just feel like the same principles apply that if like if a woman or a person is able to deprive themselves of something that we think is like essential to our survival, then they must just be better than us. Yeah. I think it makes sense because like men for other species, you can tell when a female is in heat. Men cannot tell if women are ovulating. It's all concealed and women can have a baby, but they could have had sex with multiple people. Men want to be able to control female sexuality and who they're sleeping in so they know who to invest in with their Mm -hmm. offspring. And I know this is a generalization, but I do think there is some validity to this idea. Yeah, the men don't want to put the time in to raise another man's kid. So they want to make sure that their women aren't sleeping with other people. And in order to control who the woman is sleeping with, like, you have to have control over the woman. And this would not apply to every single human society, but I think this is, like, a very, definitely a very Western idea. And, like, also, that really is why patriarchy exists. It's not just virginity. It's the broader scope of patriarchy exists to control women and to control our sexuality. Virgins are seen as a commodity, Like, they are seen as something that you own. Because even when I think about, like, times in the Old Testament where there was, like, mass genocide and God was like, go in, kill everyone, kill all the men, kill all the women who have had sex, kill all the young boys, but keep the young girls for yourself. Keep the virgins for yourself. 
let them shave their heads, mourn for a little bit, and then you can take them as wives. Like, this is... What? Yeah, you haven't heard of that? What? Like, no. Yeah. So then it's like, keep the virgins, keep the girls 12 and under, let them shave their heads and mourn, and then take them as your wives. Fun. Very fun. Yikes, dude. There's a lot of evolutionary and philosophical reasons for virginity to be held to a higher standard. But I think, like you said, Sarah, like that evolutionary reason, that makes a lot of sense that is how things started there's probably multiple reasons but all of them stacked on top of each other and then just give it time and it morphs into what patriarchy is today so it's not just christianity that associates virginity with purity and holiness there's a lot of other religions that do so i'm just going to touch on them yeah we'll start with hinduism so many hindu texts and traditions praise the virtue of a chaste and virtuous life particularly for women there's something called a kanya which is a young unmarried girl and is often associated with purity buddhism which is an interesting one because you know you think of like monks but there's sometimes an emphasis on celibacy and monastic life associated with purity and monks and nuns take vows of celibacy And they use it as a means of avoiding attachment to worldly desires and maintaining spiritual purity. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess like they could see sex as a distraction from anything that is viewed as like human and physical and like and fun and fun. (laughs) Yeah. Judaism, it doesn't place the same emphasis on virginity as some other religions, at least like in modern day Judaism. But there's obviously the concept of sexual purity within Jewish laws, and it pertains to the laws of family purity, particularly for married couples. So there's a lot of Mm -hmm. rules, but how many people follow them? I think like if you had like, if you're looking at like Orthodox Jews versus Reformed Jews versus like liberal Jews, like there's a lot of different sects, obviously. Oh, yeah, definitely. Islam, it places a strong emphasis on sexual purity and modesty encourages modesty in dress and behavior for both men and women so it's not just for women but it's obviously like emphasized for women too premarital and extramarital sexual relations are considered sinful chastity and purity are essential virtues in islamic ethics sikhism the emphasis is on moral and ethical purity rather than physical virginity they're encouraged to lead virtuous lives and avoid engaging in sinful or impure behavior so like i think that they just are like don't engage in impure behavior sex is one of them but like virginity itself maybe isn't as emphasized and then the last one is shintoism which is the indigenous religion of japan purity is a central concept and it often involves like purification ceremonies And individuals are encouraged to approach shrines and sacred places in a state of purity. So, like, just, like, purity as a concept, right? And I think for a lot of religions, like, the concept of purity, mind, body, soul, sex is, like, the one that taints all of them in their opinions. So, those are just the other religions, but now we're going to get into your favorite part, which is the philosophy of it. But I think what I just wanted to say that, like, yes, we are a Christian deconstruction podcast, but this permeates society outside of religion too and other religions the concept of virginity even if you're not religious it's still a huge part of your life like virginity is viewed as something that like you lose and you give away to somebody regardless if you're religious and even within queer culture too we've been talking about virginity in very like a heteronormative lens yes. where like you know you lose your virginity once the penis goes in the vagina But even that heteronormative concept permeates queer culture because there are concepts of like women that are lesbians that have never slept with a man are called gold star lesbians. Like they are somehow like (laughs) a different class. They are more special because they've never been like made impure by a dick. 
So you have like pure lesbians. You've never heard of gold star lesbians? No. Yeah. So even when you look, you're like, okay, this influence around virginity and very heteronormative sexuality has also made its way into the lesbian community. Because who fucking cares if someone's had sex with a man before? They can still have sex with women and be attracted to women. But it's funny that we have like this group of lesbians that have a superiority complex from time to time because they're like, I've never, (laughs) never had sex with a man. Do you, is there lesbians out there? Do you think that like wouldn't date somebody that wasn't a gold star lesbian? There are some, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ah, the things you learn. Back to our point, like it is funny even thinking about this influence goes far beyond religion into mainstream culture. And it's still seen like losing your virginity. We make such a big deal. Like it's seen as like a big rite of passage of whether you're a teenager or you're a young Christian that's waiting till they're married. Like we still celebrate that in a way or like revere it. We worship it almost. It's, it is very interesting because we do revere it because you don't want to regret it. You don't want to regret who you gave your virginity to because when you're a Christian, you're apparently tied to that person forever. Whoever took your virginity, you're tied to them forever. And if you have sex with someone else, when you're sleeping with your husband, who waited for you? You're going to be thinking about all your past sexual partners all the time and picturing them and they're going to be in the bedroom with you. It's like a big long lineup. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, it's so true. It's like an, an orgy, but not, not fun. It's, it's a worse kind of orgy. Yeah. It's the guilt orgy. Oh my God. So at this point of the research, I felt like I really needed to know why virginity and purity were so closely linked with society and religions. I was like researching the concepts of the Virgin Mary and just being like, why the fuck do we care so much? This like, there has to be a reason why I need to know the why I need to know. And it just feels like purity and sexual purity is like in our DNA. I I, I don't think there's any society in the world that doesn't think about virginity. I can tell you there is one. Oh, tell me. Have you ever gone down the rabbit hole? Like, you know how our closest relative that's living is chimpanzees? Yeah. There are two types of chimpanzees. There's classic chimpanzees and then bonobos. And we're equally related to both. And so there are two species of chimpanzees. And they have a very, very different approach to sexuality. Chimpanzees, it's very much like the male is all authoritarian and he's having sex with the females and like he's maybe having sex with multiple ones and he's the one at the top and then there's a whole hierarchy but then it's like bonobos are like female dominated and no one gives a fuck about virginity everyone's having sex did you read sex at dawn yeah of course i did (laughs) but i've also read multiple books about bonobos outside of sex at dawn but like they're all just having sex the only groups that don't have sex are mothers with their sons and daughters with their fathers. Those are the only ones that don't have sex. Phew, that's good. I did know (laughs) that about bonobos, that they're very promiscuous, but I was just more talking about like human species, but that like chimpanzee thing, that's quite interesting. But there are, there are societies where virginity is not seen as big of a thing. And those societies tend to be like matriarchal. Love of matriarchy. So some philosophers in terms of virginity and purity, they view it as merely a metaphor. They say that virginity serves as a symbol of an unspoiled or tainted state of being. So in this interpretation, it may not be necessarily related to sexual experience, but instead a state of moral or spiritual innocence. Again, like I said, control over desire is like a big philosophical argument and that 
the control over our bodies and maintaining our virginity can be seen as an expression of discipline and mastery over our impulses, which then is associated with moral purity. So the concept is like sexual purity equals moral purity. That's really interesting to me yeah. because in my opinion, I don't think that sexual purity means moral purity because I know like lots of people that have lots of sex that are great people. And I know people that have like no sex that are pieces of shit. So I don't, I personally don't subscribe to that. Like I've given everything that I've been through in life. I don't subscribe to anything to do with sexual purity. I don't care, but it's like this control over our carnal desires that we revere as something to be put above ourselves morally. I find that very interesting. But it's like, I think we, for in terms of carnal desires, it seems like we put sexuality on a whole different level, like on a whole mm-hmm. pedestal. So sexuality on a pedestal, do you think that's like a really like Western thing? Gosh, I think it's very, because if you look at like Eastern religions, like Christianity is a re- Eastern religion and same with Islam, same with Judaism. And they all seem to, especially like Islam and Christianity seem to have huge emphasis on moral purity and virginity. And, like, ancient Judaism for sure, too. Like, I understand the concept. Like, obviously, conceptually, all of this makes sense to me. But I don't feel that way. I just, like, my feelings don't line up with that. I just don't, I don't fucking get it. But in terms of actual philosophers, I wanted to talk about a few philosophers, ancient and current, that have talked about virginity. Cool. Who we got? So we'll start with Plato. Who was alive in 400 BC. So he didn't like discuss virginity directly, but he did discuss in a dialogue that he wrote called The Republic, the importance of self-control and moderation in all aspects of life, including sexuality. So he thought that a well-ordered soul would exercise restraint and control over its desires, including sexual desires. So it doesn't really necessarily have to do with virginity, but like sexual purity overall. He discusses how sexuality is interconnected to things like courage, wisdom, and justice. So interesting concept. In that same book, he also, this just made me laugh. He proposed the idea, oh my God, this is so stupid, of a utopian city-state government governed by philosopher kings. In this society, sexual relations would be regulated and controlled by the state for the purpose of producing the best possible offspring. Eugenics. Well, always seems to go there. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> the road always ends at eugenics. Okay. Uh, so obviously it's not supposed to be about virginity, but it just makes me laugh. That, that the state would control who could have sex. Very interesting concept here. He also... What I do like about Plato is that he advocated for women's equality. Yeah, women having opportunity to have an education, participate in sports, mm-hmm. participate in philosophy. So it's good. So something to note. So we don't hate Plato too much. We just No. This is 400 BC. So Aristotle talked about moderation. Socrates taught Plato, talked about things like this. But it's just because Plato talked about specifically that sexuality is interconnected with like wisdom. I like that, though, with justice. Yeah, with justice. But, but like, how? Well, I think sex is a way to teach, like, I think consent and learning about, like, pleasing someone else and also being pleased and thinking of someone else. And I think there's obviously lessons in life to be learned from sex. But I think that restraining from sex when other philosophers that we're going to talk about in a second are like, restraint is what's most important. But I'm like, if you're restraining yourself from sex... I just don't think that you're going to have the most level head. 
So you shouldn't be administering justice. I don't think personally that's going to be in everybody's best interest. So moving on to 480. Okay. Is St. Augustine of Hippo. Do you know Augustine? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I thought you might. I don't think I like what St. Augustine's going to say. St. Augustine of Hippo was a Christian theologian and philosopher. He held a very high reverence for the Virgin Mary. If you think about the doctrines that came into place, a lot of them came into place after Augustine died, but I think he helped shape a lot of them. Yes, absolutely. He's like weirdly obsessed with the concept of virginity. He wrote about it a lot. And uh, his views have, like I said, like I think they have greatly shaped Christianity in terms of views regarding sexuality, morality, and chastity. He wrote a lot of books and essays slash like writings. And his ideas regarding virginity are sprinkled in a lot of his writings. But I'm going to talk about two of his books directly. Okay. So he has two books, one called On Holy Virginity and one called On the Good of Marriage. Okay. So the first one, which is On Holy Virginity, it's one of his most significant writings on the topic of virginity. He praises the virtues of virginity and celibacy, emphasizing their superior and moral status compared to marriage. It's very Paul-esque of him. Yeah, I know. It's better to stay a virgin than to get married and lose your virginity. That is very Paul. You're right. He praises virgins as dedicated brides of Christ. Oh, my God. (laughs) Brides of Christ. How many times have you heard that on TikTok? And explores the theological significance of consecrated virginity. So the reason that he wrote on holy virginity is that he was responding to the claim of a guy named Jovinian, who was a monk in Rome, who argued that perpetual virginity was in no way superior to marriage. So then Augustine was like, fuck you, Jovinian. I'm going to write a whole book. (laughs) But then he writes a book called On the Good of Marriage. And he starts this book by affirming that marriage is a good and honorable institution and acknowledges like the good of marriage and its role in fulfilling his God plan for humanity. So he kind of has to like backpedal a little bit, which make me laugh. He also addresses the benefits of marital chastity. Like, oh my God, God. he's such a nerd. He's like, you have to even control your sexual desires within marriage. This is such like Victorian era. Like, yes, he thinks that sexual relations within marriage should be done in love, respect and procreation. I agree that it should be done in love and respect, but I don't think that it should be done only within procreation. And that's what he thinks. Love, respect and procreation. It's also what Catholics think because they're against birth control and condoms. Uh, And condoms, yes. He thinks that we're on the earth for procreation and to raise godly children and he like literally our purpose is to have kids to make them christians and for them to have kids and then make them christians and then so on and so on this sounds like very quiverful yes i'd say like a lot of his works have influenced christianity like in the worst ways (laughs) Because, like, you know, back in, like, 400 AD, it's just one guy. But then that turns into a whole religion. This is also, like, pre the concept of bodily autonomy and, like, access to contraception. There was, like... Nothing. There was There was nothing. But he's, like... So he also thinks that lust should be controlled within marriage, too. I'm, like, can you ever have fun? Are you ever allowed to have a good time? Or is it all just shit all the time? The fun thing is getting drunk on the Holy Spirit. And the fun thing is that you get to go to heaven and then you get to have fun. No, heaven's not fun. I thought heaven was fun. No, you're worshiping God the whole time. It's like one big long service. How is that not fun for Christians? They love it. That's like their favorite (laughs) thing, Sarah. 
So, and then again, he still holds virginity to the a higher esteem than marriage. So that's Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo, okay. That is mostly what I have with like ancient philosophers, not ancient, but like old philosophers. Let's get to New Day. A French philosopher named Michel Foucault. Foucault. Oh, Foucault. Because I didn't minor in philosophy. I don't actually know a lot about philosophers. So what do you know about Foucault? Do you remember anything about him? All I know is that he talked about sex. Yeah. A lot. That's pretty good. And wasn't he like a little gay? Maybe. Aren't we all a little gay though? That's false. Are you a little gay? No. (laughs) I don't think so. I'm very sexually repressed, but I don't think I'm gay. But who knows at this point? He died in 1984. Like this guy is recent AF. Yeah, though this is recent. This is 20th century. Like he wrote this stuff in the 70s. He examined the historical and cultural aspects of sexuality, including the ways in which society has constructed notions of purity and virginity. So he's like, virginity is a social construct. And I'm like, yes, Michelle, you are correct. He argued that sexuality wasn't as repressed as we thought during the 17th and 19th centuries, which was an interesting thing to read. Yeah, It was just more like coded and done behind closed doors. And he highlighted the emergence of the confessional mode of discussing sexuality, particularly in the Christian context. So he talked about the practice of confessing our sexual thoughts and deeds to religious authorities. He says that it played a significant role in the regulation of sexuality because like nobody wanted to have to confess that stuff. So they either like lied or they stopped doing it. So it like controlled the way that we viewed sexuality. Can I just tell you a little bit about Foucault? Of course. Tell me what you know about Foucault. Do you know how he died? Oh my god, how? He died of HIV in the oh. 80s. He's gay. Oh. Yeah. <gasps> he met philosopher David DeFerre in 1960, and they were life partners for 20 years. Wow. It's interesting because we just talked about St. Augustine of Hippo, which is like ancient, and then we're now we're talking about someone who died from HIV, but his philosophical ideas are really interesting i would actually like to learn more about him i've realized how much i like philosophy but only when it has to do with things that i'm interested in i don't want to know about philosophy of things that i don't care about that's kind of the issue yeah i think that's normal (laughs) that makes sense okay so he died of complications due to hiv but he did write extensively about sexuality being a social construct which is totally true so we're gonna move on to another philosopher it's a woman And she was alive in the 1940s. She wrote about this in the 40s. But what's great is that it's in the 40s and like women weren't even people back then. But she was like, I'm going to write about this anyway. They were people as of the 1920s, silly goose. Oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. (laughs) They've been people for two decades by that point. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, though, she uh, so I read about her work and then I read about her philosophers. They're the craziest ones. You think philosophers are going to be boring. They have the craziest lives. So. We don't really have a lot of time to talk about specific philosophers, but she had a crazy life. I think she would be an autobiographical goldmine. She was bisexual. Yeah. So she married another philosopher, but I think that they were like very sexually free. They definitely had an open marriage. I think it was a marriage of convenience more than anything. And sometimes they would like invite their students to sleep with them, which is like, ugh. So she discussed the concept of virginity in her book called The Second Sex. It's in French, but it has been translated to English. This book is foundational in feminist philosophy. Did you know that? She critiqued how society's fixation on female virginity contributes to the objectification and oppression of women. So, yeah. yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. 
So here are some of her arguments that I highlighted that I thought were interesting from her book. So virginity is a social construct. Love it. Used to control women's bodies and limited autonomy and freedom. It is used in patriarchal societies to maintain male dominance. Yep. Yep. She also argues that religion was created for male dominance over women. Perpetuating the patriarchy. Yeah, it was just, like, interesting being like, oh, she talked about religion for a sec. How being like, yeah, religion was literally created for female dominance. Well, I mean, when you see God, like, when you see Genesis, Mm -hmm. it's literally right there. Like, you're made for him to help him, like, he is to rule over you. It's all there. First 11 chapters of Genesis, as Ken Ham would say, has all the answers. God damn it, Ken Ham. The next argument is the notion of virginity reduces women to their sexual purity or lack thereof. She saw this as a form of objectification that denies women their individual agency, defining them solely in relation to men. She said how the myth of womanhood, so like the myth of womanhood is like women are pure, passive, and submissive. How this is linked to the concept of virginity. So she argued that this myth reinforces traditional gender roles and perpetuates women's oppression. And she explored the cultural obsession with women losing their virginity and how it is often depicted as super significant. And men's virginity is not subjugated to the same scrutiny. Yep. So that's Simone de Beauvoir. I've been struggling with like what to read lately because I went really deep on some some stories about like sexual abuse within religion and just church. Some stories you read three books. Yeah. In a week. In a week. (laughs) And that was a lot. And they were lovely. They were really powerful books by badass human beings. But at the same time, it was a lot. So I need to, I just need to like pivot a little in my reading and Mm -hmm. I'm going to read some Simone. I just was looking at Kindle. At her book? Yeah. Let me know. Because I need to read some books in French too. So it's perfect. Yeah. It would probably be better in the original language. So yeah, you should read that. That's interesting. I love that for you. I think that interestingly that you say that about the burnout from reading all those heavy books. So that's why I read a lot of fantasy because fantasy, I read fantasy before I go to bed. Sometimes I'll read the same fantasy books over and over because they're my comfort books. Really? Because yeah, (laughs) I'm like, you know, I was going to say, you know, when you were young and you read Harry Potter. Now I know you didn't read Harry Potter, but listeners, I read the Hunger Games more than once. Okay, so there you go. The Hunger Games would have been maybe like a comfort book because, well, God, Hunger Games is a lot more depressing, but <laughs> it's not much of a comfort book. <laughs> the Bible was my comfort book growing up. Yeah, God. Oh, yeah. That, there also you go. Not but much like, of a comfort book. I would read Harry Potter over and over again because you know what's going to happen. The writing is comforting. It's just, it's an anxiety thing. And so oh. now I just read specific fantasy series that I love so much. So if you ever want to talk about fantasy books, let me know, guys, because I'm here for it. But. Like you said, these books that we read and these things that we read are so heavy. Like I go down these cult rabbit holes and it's so awful. It impacts you. like Yeah. And it re-traumatizes me. That's all it does. Yeah. And, but I can't stop. It was like this spiral and I just, I couldn't stop. And I reached a certain point where I was like, this is probably not great for me. And then I kept doing it. This is so relatable because this has happened to me so many times where I get really obsessed with the subject and then I hyper-focus to the point that 
I get to a point in the research and I'm like, this probably isn't good for me. Anyway, let's keep going. That's the moment that you actually do have to stop because you're about to go in so much deeper and go to panic attack place. You don't want to go to panic attack place. So you got to back it up, even though it sucks because you're like, I want to know. You got to find something else to distract you. And then you can revisit. I think if I notice I'm hyper-focusing on anything, period, I think from now on, I just need to be like, okay, let's have a little self-reflection right here and see Mm -hmm. if this is adding to your life or adding to your anxiety. I can think of specific podcasts that I've listened to that I've been obsessed with. And I can tell you exactly where I was in my life when I listened to those because I was so into them. And you can pinpoint these moments that you have these obsessions. So yeah, I'm glad you're feeling better, a little bit better at least. Yeah, I am. So we talked about quite a bit today. What do you feel like you learned today? Besides the fact that you're using the word immaculate conception wrong. That was definitely in the top three. Uh, The other points I learned, I think it's just the level of emphasis on virginity to the point where like it wasn't okay for the son of God or part God, part man, whatever. It wasn't okay for Jesus, just for Jesus to be a virgin. Like his mother also had to be a virgin but she needed to be like immaculate she needed to be conceived like without sex herself to like preserve this virginity so it's like that infinite regressions of virginities which was not actually needed why was virginity the thing that everyone's so obsessed with in this context so like they're free from sin the original sin and they never had sex so if we're talking about hierarchy of sin so like in theory in christianity like all sins are bad but like we know like having sex versus murdering somebody in society we all have our man-made hierarchies it's all bad to god but like we we see a little more nuance in terms of like the degree of sin i hope god does too if there's a god i really hope that like me having sex with my partner versus like someone i don't know going and doing unimaginable horrible things like i hope there's a difference there if there isn't then like why would you want anything to to worship that god God. that's where like a lot of deconstructionists come to you're like why does it matter if a p goes in the v but like jeffrey dahmer over here apparently is in heaven like what like i can't i cannot get on board there you just don't understand the concept of god's grace I hate it. I hate how those capo dancers for everything, like this whole time when we're talking, they kept coming to my head like God's ways are higher than ours. No, we want to actually understand and we want to actually question things. And I think it's really interesting how in modern day Christianity, there are so many different views. And I also think that just reflecting on the relationship between like Protestantism and Catholicism, like that's a whole fucking series of episodes because that's the cause of like wars and all kinds of tensions across the world. And Mary was such a big part of that growing up. Whenever I heard people talking about it, it was always back to Mary. The Catholic interpretation of Mary, she was too honored. She was too revered. I'm curious for us to talk about like what we thought about virginity when we were young and in the church. And it's interesting to talk about this kind of stuff because I really have to like put myself back into that mindset and try to remember because you know that I like to block a lot of things out. So I've been thinking about what did I think about virginity and purity and modesty back in those days. So virginity itself, when we worked at camp, I had a boyfriend who also like went to camp with us, went to church with us. Like we all did all the same things together for a couple of years. I was like, I'm going to get married when I'm 19 to this guy and we're not going to even touch each other until marriage, whatever. And like that was the hope. And I think that there were some bumps in the road though. There are some, (laughs) you're 
were talking. Like, imagine if that was my testimony. There were some challenges. There were some challenges. And the devil really tried to tempt us. But then <laughs> you called me. <laughs> I called Sarah up and she helped me out. So at that age, what was I, 15, 16, I would not have been ready for sex just kind of like late bloomer energy we're both late bloomers yes i think that also it gave me a superiority complex oh for sure and then finding out that maybe like other people that were like in our christian circle had sex was like the biggest fucking deal oh yeah i remember getting so mad at people before in our like one of our first episodes you talked about how you got mad at one of our friends for giving their boyfriend a blowjob yeah and she went on birth control without telling me because her mom was (gasps) like oh you're that could happen. So, like, as a as any good liberal mother would do, she gets her daughter to have some form of contraception. And then I got mad, though. Why wouldn't you tell me? Why wouldn't she tell you, Sarah? I can't imagine why she wouldn't. <laughs> Maybe because you weren't going to take it well. Yeah. I love the, the codependency of our old friendships. Because, like, in our teen years for me, like, there was always the question. And people would ask this at youth group, like, how far is too far? But then when Josh Harris was popularized, like after reading his book, I remember like he brings up that question, how close should you get to the fire or would you want to just avoid the possibility of being burned? And I was like, ooh. So I definitely had periods where I didn't want to kiss someone till marriage. But when I was growing up, some people were like, you can peck, but not French kiss. Other people were like, you can French kiss, but not lie down horizontally or touch boobs (laughs) or genitals. Because as soon as you lie down horizontally, the devil can get you. It's just creating all those rules. And it's all surrounded by this concept that if you have P and V sex, because it was all heteronormative sex before marriage, that you are unworthy of going to heaven or unworthy of God's love or you're impure because you're you, dirty. You're just you're you gross. gave in to your carnal desire in this paradigm in this world like especially as a woman your body is not your own and as a man too because even in the bible it says when you're married to become one and also like the woman gives over the authority of her body to her husband and the husband gives over the authority of his body to his wife so it's it's equal in a way but like it's also unhealthy your body is still your body regardless of who you're sleeping with or who you're dating or who you're with but that's not how i was raised like your body is not your own your body is a temple of God. And by breaking that down, instead of telling people that they have bodily autonomy and saying that your body actually belongs to God, this is just like a meat sack that your soul is in and then you'll be going to heaven later. That almost makes you feel disconnected from your body. And I think that's like another reason why a lot of people, they don't understand when they're being like sexually assaulted because they don't have a mind-body connection because that's yeah. been so severed. Yeah, it's that whole paradigm, like desires of the flesh, like your body is viewed as bad it's almost like your mind is the place where you might be tempted to sin but your body is what carries it out and so yeah that's that i do remember like these all these memories come back that like every desire that you have is so filthy and sinful that is probably what fucked me up the most in my life in terms of the way that i relate to myself as a person like so in christianity i became depressed and that's when I had like my first signs of depression. Yeah. And then it continued for years until I was able to like figure it out, get help, go on medication. And my depression, it's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, how much I fucking hated myself. Like you're worthless. You don't deserve anything. You don't deserve love. You don't deserve to be alive. All of those things were constantly going through my head. And I think that 
all religion did was feed that machine. <laughs> Your sins nailed Jesus to the cross. You are the reason why he, his blood was shed. So question, should we do a story time with Sarah? Yeah, we should. Just because you know how I referenced genocide a little earlier? That'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love genocide? I thought maybe we would do a story pertaining to virginity. Bitch, genocide and virginity. You got your double meal deal here. Oh, wow. Welcome to Storytime with Sarah. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a story from our favorite book, the Bible. So what are we doing today, Sarah? We are doing the story, The Vengeance of the Midianites. And this is from Numbers 31. If you want to open your swords and turn to (laughs) Numbers 31st chapter. I'm there. I'm ready. Okay. My sword is raised. Okay. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So God's like, take vengeance on the Midianites. I don't know what they did, but I guess maybe we'll find out. Let's see. (laughs) So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So, okay, 12,000 men armed for battle. Okay, cool. So we got 12,000 men, all Israelites going for battle. Okay, they keep repeating that we get it. It's a thousand from each tribe. Cool. (laughs) And Phineas, son of Eleazar, was also there. Just Phineas was there. Cool, cool, cool. As the Lord said to do, they fought against the Midianites and they killed every single man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zer, Her, and Reba. (laughs) (laughs) Reba. Fuck, poor Reba, that sucks. And the five kings of Midian, okay. And then the Israelites captured the Midianite women and the children and took all of the herds and the flocks and the goods as plunder. So there you have it. God is rewarding the Israelites with some human plunder. That's right. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, they burned all the towns, too. Don't forget. Yeah, they burn all the towns down and all the camps. They can't go to their camp. They can't go on their boat. God is burning it all down. And they took all the spoils. Ooh, So they took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captives and spoils and plunder to Moses. So Moses is mad. He's like, why did you let the women live? Like, I want to just keep the little children for myself. Gross, Moses. Um, So he's like, why did you let the women live? They were the ones that followed Balaam's advice and were unfaithful to the Lord and whatever incident. And there was a plague and sounds really complicated and dramatic. Okay. So then Moses is like, fuck you. Why'd you let the women live? No, you killed the women. If they've had sex with the men, if their hymens are gone, we don't want those women. They're going to go and kill all the little boys. Don't care their age. Okay, cool. And save for yourself every girl who has not slept with a man. So we are going to, we are going to just... Think about this. The average age that women would have gotten married back then was like 12 to 14 years old. So we're thinking, keep for yourself every child that is female from 11 years and under. So we're talking like little children here. Yeah. Anyone who has killed someone or touched someone who was killed must stay outside the camp for seven days. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) On the third and the seventh days, you must purify yourselves and your captives. Then Alizar, so the priest was like, this is what is required by God. By the law that the Lord gave to Moses, gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, lead, anything else that can withstand fire must be put through fire and it will be clean. 
Okay, so now they're dividing up the spoils. So I'm looking at the spoils, and it's like the plunderer is 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 women who had never slept with the man. This is how they shared it. Like, who fucking cares? What a terrible book the Bible is. <laughs> you want to keep people interested, you got to skip over some of these details. And the half share of those who fought in the battle. So the 12,000 men that fought in battle, there's probably like only half of them. that, Like not all of them are coming back. So we're just going to say 10,000 men are getting 337, 500,000 sheep. And then they're going to kill 6,675 for God. Okay, cool. And then they're getting 36,000 cattle, but they're going to give 72 as burnt offerings to God. And then they're getting... 30,500 donkeys, 61 are going to God, and then 16,000 people, by people we mean little girls ages 11 and under, and Mm -hmm. they're going to sacrifice 32 to God. Oh. Great. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Dude, missed this part. I missed this part. I've never seen this part. I've missed this part. What verse is this? This is 40, verse 40. 40? 16,000 people of whom the tribute for the Lord was 32. Oh, no. Whoa. That's... Jesus Christ. Holy fuck. I missed that part. That part was not... Wow. When I was a kid, they were like, oh, they're just going to take care of them and let them grow up. Hey, Sarah. Yeah? The Lord works in mysterious ways, okay? Don't pretend to understand. (laughs) That's... Okay. Okay. So, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the most depressed you've ever been, where are you at right now? I thought it was bad. I was this. I'm still stuck on numbers 31. I thought it was bad that they killed everyone else and just like kept the little girls. But like, the fact that they like sacrificed 32 little girls as a burnt offering to God is just like the the chef's kiss in this awful fucking story. I know. I'm actually like I can't let my brain go there because yeah, yeah. So don't go there. That's fucked. So what did I learn? How do I feel? I feel like I am so glad that I'm not going through mental gymnastics to try and prove why like any god would sanction that like thank fucking god that i'm not believing in the christian god thank fucking god that i don't believe in god yeah yeah thank (laughs) fucking god like if there's some higher power i just hope to god they wouldn't be like that and i would not want to follow them if they were i will say if there's a higher power i doubt that this is the higher power um this is very (laughs) man-made like it's a very man-made situation that we find ourselves in even the concept of virginity, it's so fabricated to yeah. perpetuate patriarchy that it's almost comical how obvious that is when you actually look into it. Yeah. So I hope that everybody learns something today and that your views of virginity have either changed or stayed the same, but also hopefully they haven't gone the way of virginity is some sacred thing that we need to protect because bodily autonomy is important. How you think about your own sexuality is the most important thing yeah nobody can tell you that you are impure or immoral because your number is high and don't count how many people you've slept with because it doesn't matter what matters is how you feel about yourself and your confidence and that you're respecting other people and being a good person and I think that it was really interesting getting into the philosophy of it and I think seeing the evolution Mm -hmm. of our views of virginity And I think that really the only time that modern philosophers were able to question our views of virginity was as soon as they were questioning our views of religion. I think deconstructing what Mm -hmm. virginity means in society goes hand in hand with deconstructing the rest of any sort of religious dogma that was subscribed to. 
I hope that society continues to progress to the point that everybody feels that this is just a social construct. Like, what are we doing? And why are we so hellbent on controlling the bodies of other people? Like, men in religion that want to control women, they want a pre-fall Eve. They want innocence. Mm -hmm. They want submission. They want someone who's not going to question, someone that doesn't want more knowledge, someone that doesn't want to have a say in her body and just a say in things in general like they want they want something that's not real it's not real yeah okay sarah i'm gonna go for a hike and forget about this bs and i hope that you feel better i do feel better i just took a second there i was like (laughs) i was like this is even this is even even more hard to explain away than i initially thought Yeah, guys, go read Numbers 31 and try to do some of Christian apologetics for it and let us know what you come up with. Seriously, seriously do. Like, I don't get it. But you can also still be a Christian and be like, that that was fucked. I don't know. Let's just agree that that's, yeah, it's wrong and awful. Crazy, yeah. All right, well, thank you, everyone. If you want bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash heaven in a miniskirt, and we will be having a bonus episode probably come out very soon i'm sure they're always coming out we love you bye okay bye nestorius was the arse was the archbishop was the arse i was the archbishop (laughs) he was the archbishop of constantinople oh my god am i like i'm losing it i can't pronounce anything today he was the archbishop of constantinople